3: This is Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed milliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello, hello. Do you want to hear the good news? Yes. Our podcast, yes, was in Spotify's top picks
0: in the health and lifestyle section. Ooh, that's because of my cycling, my running the food all of those things this is
3: what i think just by virtue of the fact that you've been talking so openly and compellingly
0: and compellingly about your uh, cold water swimming we're in the self-help section now aren't yes we? honestly i mean it's uh, it's uh, it's a big deal mm. how have you been
3: I've, I've been fine i sent you a link the other day to a book called ageless i read it I because read it. With the, um with the Blue Zones episode and with your fitness
0: regime... I find, it quite un- I find that sort of thing quite unsettling somehow. The, the basic premise
3: of this book is that science at some point will be able to cure, in inverted commas, the ageing process. Uh, so, for example, giant tortoises in the Galapagos Islands, they show no signs of decline related to age. Well, I'm very much in favour of this. There's something called computational biology um senolytic medicine and this is this is a field which says aging might become a thing of the past i thought it'd appeal to you but it appeals to me massively but what should one do about it go and get a
0: prescription you could offer yourself up for clinical trials Hmm. Maybe. <laughs> you and I were going to go and visit – I know this is slightly off topic, aren't, but it's sort of not completely off topic. We were going to go and visit the Singularity University, weren't we? Yes. I think it might have something to do with – I know the singularity is something completely different, but I sort of feel like in that neck of the woods in California.
3: Yeah, we're we're in the sort of futuristic realm, aren't we? Yeah. The singularity is when computers become more intelligent than humans, isn't it? Yes. But I think you're kind of talking about this thing where theoretically you can – somehow become immortal by merging with computers and uploading your consciousness to the Oh is that what it cloud. is? cloud I, th- I think maybe that's what that, that's what you're thinking of beyond the singularity. I seem to remember as having a guest on the podcast who was quite interesting on on the peripheries of this subject and you tried to get us invited to California to go and see them about it and they they closed it down quite quickly. That
0: sort of does happen to us doesn't
3: it? You're always trying to get us invited somewhere sunny and it always fails.
0: I really care about being somewhere sunny as I've (laughs) said to you you know uh this it's a i think it's a sign of old age actually is that i'm so happy that it's getting darker i just want to repeat this that it's getting darker later i mean it's really cheering me out massively we can't be that far off the clocks going forward either can we that's a big moment when the clocks go forward Mm. i've got a coda to last week's episode which is that i got rather embarrassed because you asked me what i was doing for valentine's day and i sort of basically said i was making a tomato soup with leftover tomatoes um And that didn't seem very romantic. And uh, can I just point out, we took that
3: out of the podcast because I thought I I don't want to present Ed as this unromantic oaf.
0: Yeah, exactly. But anyway, the good news is that in a remarkable piece of Valentine's Day co-production, my wife roasted the tomatoes um, and then I turned it into a roasted tomato soup, which we had when we had sort of our Valentine's Day.
3: Isn't that romantic? This is great. So we had a leftover tomato story that was literally left over. But it turned into a romantic event. And, and was it, you know, like in, in the kitchen, was it a romantic event or was it more like Morecambe and Wise when they're making the breakfast? Probably a bit of both.
0: Okay. Ah. So, but anyway, it was, it's, got, it's got a happy ending, that story.
3: I'm so pleased that we've all all got a bit
0: of closure. Yeah, exactly. Um, Shall we talk about what we're talking about? Yes. Well, this week we're talking about Rentier Capitalism. The idea that our economy increasingly rewards people simply for owning things rather than doing things. Author and academic Brett Christophers has written a book with the title Rentier Capitalism, Who Owns the Economy and Who Pays for It, which is creating a bit of noise. Uh, He argues that Britain in particular has become a rentier economy in which wealth is increasingly accumulated by those who own valuable assets. Crucially, not just things like property and land, but natural resources, digital platforms and even government contracts. And you know his book is really making waves, and we thought it would be really good to talk to him about it. Uh, and we'll be exploring his case and what we can do about it. Uh, and then we're focusing on one of the rentier sectors that he identifies, public sector outsourcing. We're going to be talking to Pascal Robinson from the We Own It campaign about what the pandemic has shown about the problems of outsourcing in the UK and how we could be running public services instead. And our cheerful person this week is a former
3: colleague of Ed's, but they are still on speaking terms, though. Though. Mark Steers will be asking Mark what it was like writing speeches for Ed and then chatting about his new book, Out of the Ordinary, how everyday life inspired a nation and how it can again. And it's worth saying that this is just a preview of the conversation we had with Mark. It was such a good interview that we're going to put out the full version, which goes into much more detail on the themes of his book later in the week. What's your reason to be cheerful? Paddington 3 has been announced. Really? Yes, which I'm delighted about. The Paddington films are are just lovely and really funny and just joyful. Has Gene seen them? Yeah, he's he's seen them. We just watched Paddington 2 somewhat recently, actually, and he was quite distressed uh, about the miscarriage of justice which sees Paddington ending up in jail I know I've talked to Justine about this flaw in the justice
0: system before yeah. and, it, you know, hopefully it's, it's been ironed out. She's been pretty ineffective at doing anything about it, I would say. Yeah. Uh, um, but, you know, because my children had a big trauma when we took them to see Paddington 1 in the cinema. Why? Nicole Kid- Kidman and the hypodermic needle. I mean, it really didn't go well.
3: Oh, yes. So she's some kind of crazed uh, taxidermist, yeah. isn't it? Uh, my my yeah. big question about Paddington 3 actually is, will they cast donald sutherland as the baddie because because it seems to me that they're baddies they're working through the principal cast of the undoing so it was nicole kidman ah. in the first one hugh grant in the second one will it be donald sutherland in the third one
0: i mean i've got a good idea though for a baddie yeah which is you me is this about the mustache again yeah i mean that is a baddie mustache honestly i think you could (laughs) definitely be the baddie thank you thank you thank you so much i mean that in the nicest way i mean you're obviously not a baddie how nice can the nicest way of saying you look like a baddie be i feel like i'm in a hole here i think so shall we ask you what your reason to be cheerful is then so my reason to be cheerful i think you deserve credit for this um is Lupin. oh yeah yeah (laughs) it's fun isn't it which is a new series on netflix french about a master master thief would you call it yeah kind of yeah and it's one of those things where i watched it um i sort of saw the preview and thought mm, am i gonna really like this and I, I really love it but there are only five episodes unfortunately we're three we're through two of them i think there's five more coming in the summertime really you, you, did you watch it ages ago
3: no we watched it when we finished call my agent we weren't quite ready to leave oh france Uh, so we tried Lupin, and uh i just thought it was it was it was great fun and so watchable
0: there's a real market failure gap which is what do you watch it's just so hard to know i thought we were supposed to be in the era where all our tastes are sort of known by kind of algorithms Mm. and they kind of tell us what we would like i mean you're my best algorithm thank you i mean wasn't it easier when there were three channels is sort of what i'm saying at least you don't have to get up to change channels anymore though. No flipping.
3: Reasons to be cheerful. A podcast about ideas with Ed Milliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to start by trying to wrap our heads around this idea of Rentier Capitalism and and with who better to do it than uh, the author of the book that Ed was just raving about that's making such waves. It's called Rentier Capitalism, Who Owns the Economy and Who Pays for It. Uh, he's also professor in the Department of Social and Economic Geography at Uppsala University in Sweden. Brett Christophers, hello. Hi, how you doing? Doing well, doing well. I wondered if you could just give me, because uh, I'm the one who needs it, the idiot's guide to this phrase, rentier
4: capitalism. Right. I think the easiest place to start is, to, you know, to talk about rentier capitalism. You have to talk about rent and what rent is, and and you know, to most people, rent is a very obvious thing. It's what you pay for, uh, you know, to your landlord to live in a to live in a house or a flat. Uh, but in economics, rent is a much more a complicated and much broader concept. There's essentially two schools of thought um, on how to understand rent. So for mainstream economists, rent is a form of excess profit. So if normal profit is the profit that you are able to earn in a competitive market, rent is the excess profit that's obtainable by virtue of the fact that a market is not competitive. There's a whole other kind of corpus of economic ideas, economic theory, broadly referred to as um, heterodox economics, but they understand rent very differently. So for them, rent is income earned by virtue of control or ownership of some exclusive asset or resource of some kind, of which a house is obviously a very good example. But it's not the only example. So it could also be a financial asset. It could be an intellectual property asset, like a patent or copyright or something like that. It could be a natural resource like oil or gas. And so, as I say, for heterodox economists, that's what rent is, is, is income earned by virtue of control of that asset. And so I lean towards that understanding in this book. So it's all about asset ownership, asset control. So if that's what rent is in the, in the book, a rentier is an organization or an individual whose income is, consists substantially of rent. Traditionally, a lot of people when they think of the word rentier, they think of an individual. You know, back in the Gilded Age, an individual who owns, you know, a country estate in the UK and earns income from tenant farmers. But today, you know, most rentier income, most income accruing to rentiers accrues to corporations. And so if that's what a rentier is, rentier capitalism is is a form of capitalism that is dominated by rents and rentiers. So it's dominant so incomes flowing within rentier capitalism take the form predominantly of rents and the organizations and individuals that are um, kind of in control of that uh, capitalist system are predominantly rentiers. And so what I argue in the book is that, is that the UK, particularly over the past four decades, has really become um, kind of a, a quintessential form of a rentier capitalist society
3: You've given us a, a broad view there, Brett. I wondered if you could give us some specific examples of sectors which fit this definition of rentier
4: capitalism. The two that are that are most well known are finance, so where the asset is financial assets, um, and land and property, where the asset is housing or commercial property or or untransformed uh, land. So those are the two. I guess the two most well-known, but I also point to a, a series of other sectors that, that are perhaps less obvious. So one of those is intellectual property, so patents, trademarks, copyright, um, where um, where control of those assets enables uh, the owners of, of those assets to earn rent. Uh, another one is, is digital platforms, where the uh, platform owner owns uh, the, an asset that enables them to generate income by virtue of controlling the terms on which uh, the parties that use that that platform trade with one another. Um, Another one is infrastructure, things like water and wastewater networks, telecommunications networks, gas and electricity transmission and distribution networks, where all sorts of different actors have to gain access to those network infrastructures in order to to deliver products and services. And therefore, if you own those those infrastructures, it enables you to earn a rent by virtue of control of those infrastructures. The last one is one which I'm sure we'll, we'll probably talk about at length because it, it can often seem a bit counterintuitive, is what I refer to as, as contract assets. So this is where uh, services are being outsourced by public sector or private sector actors to third parties, and that occurs uh, within the context of long-term contracts for the delivery of those products or services and those contracts are the key assets that contract rentiers are in control of.
3: And is the problem with it that this you know, whatever the asset is, is earning money passively. It's not making or doing anything. And often and you, you see this with the housing housing market but also in in so many other areas. The the the, the actual value of the asset continues to increase of its own volition and it all kind of feeds into itself.
4: That issue of kind of what's the problem with rentier capitalism is one I try and I try and look at in detail in the book. And I'm far from being the first to, to, to write about rentier capitalism. A lot of books that have, uh, well-known books that have come out in recent years are also about rentier capitalism, even if they don't call it that. And Thomas Piketty's first big book, which I'm sure a lot of your readers would have, will know about, was also insignificant part about rentier capitalism. And so for a lot of those authors it's it is precisely the fact that it's passive income, that it's income often earned without doing very much that is perceived to be the problem. But what I tried to do in the book is try to look at it rather differently and say let's you know let's put aside you know how active you are or are not uh, in earning this income to what extent it's it's earned or unearned income. Let's look at it in a different way and say what are the consequences of an economy being dominated by, by rent and by rentiers? And I, and I point to two main things in the book. The, the first I point to, almost by their very nature, rentiers that control these existing assets are incentivized to kind of sit on those assets and sweat those assets rather than investing in the creation of new products and services. And so a rentier economy tends to be kind of tendentially prone to low investment. It's also tendentially prone to low productivity growth. In the UK macroeconomic data of recent decades, you can see all this, you know, declining levels of investment, declining levels of research and development expenditure, declining growth in labour productivity.
0: What's an example of that, just for our listeners, that where you'd be sitting on the asset and not doing the things you said? What's an example?
4: So I think a very good example of that is if you look at the UK pharmaceutical sector, and I think what's happened with, 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 with regard to COVID is actually a good exception to this. But, you know, th- there are all sorts of incentives, um, particularly through the tax system, but also through the law, that mean that a lot of pharmaceutical companies spend a lot of time on trying to, through legal means as much as anything else, trying to extend the protections associated with existing patents. So if a patent lasts a certain number of years, they'll spend an enormous enormous amount of time and effort on trying to extend that patent protection. Because of that, they're not spending the same amount of time investing in new products and services. So so this is the first set of issues I point to, which is kind of uh, low investment, low levels of innovation, and and, and basically because of that, low levels of economic growth uh, in the UK. The second thing I point to is that a rentier economy is one um, which is almost kind of a, a labo- almost perfect laboratory conditions for the exacerbation of inequality, and that's both income inequality and wealth inequality. If you want to understand why the UK has, has become um, a much more unequal society in recent decades, understanding the rentier rom- the aspect of the economy is is important to do that, and so. In terms of income inequality, a lot of the particularly housing and financial assets are owned by frontier households at the top of the income spectrum. So you have people earning lots of employment income who are topping up that income uh, with asset based income from, for example, buy to let property and and financial assets. And at the lower end of the income spectrum, you have people essentially paying rents to those people at the top end of the income spectrum, particularly in the form of housing rent and then and then also in terms of wealth inequality um what you find is that um you know in in this this is where we go back to uh, to Piketty's book, so Piketty talks about this famous r over g relationship. he argues that um, wealth inequality tends to Um, grow within capitalist societies, because the rate of return on existing assets, his R, tends to be higher than the rate of economic growth, his G. Well, as I've already said, G tends to get suppressed in rentier societies. And R is the the metric of rent, basically the rate of return on existing assets. And in a rentier society, that tends to be inflated for reasons we can talk about to do with things like the tax system.
3: And what sort of societies or or even countries um, don't lend themselves to rentier capitalism? What are the countries that don't have this to the extent that the UK has it?
4: I think a good way to answer that question is to say, is to examine the historical reasons why this has happened in the UK. So the first of those is really about privatisation. So as, as, as many people will know, the UK has gone kind of further and faster and more broadly down the road of privatisation than almost any other country, certainly than, say, the United States has. So more assets have been privatised in the UK um, than almost anywhere else. And what that means is that there's more privately owned assets available for the private sector to earn rents on than elsewhere. The second reason is that is that those assets tend to be extremely well protected from competition within the UK. And again, often more protected from competition than elsewhere. And a lot of that is to do with, uh, firstly to do with very strongly enforced intellectual property rights, but also with a very kind of um, weakly enforced competition policy regime in recent decades. So more assets, better protected from competition. Thirdly, less of that income that gets earned, gets handed over to the tax authorities. So the UK tax regime is one that is incredibly friendly to rentier individuals and companies. And you can think about that in a general sense in terms of capital gains tax, so low rates of capital gains tax, but there are also within individual sectors, very, very friendly tax policies. And then last but not least, and this goes back to something you mentioned earlier, Jeff, it tends it 's an environment that for forty years has been incredibly conducive to asset price inflation, so as you were saying earlier, people sit back and see the values of their assets rise that 's due to a lot of things, but a lot of it is due to monetary policy, both before the financial crisis and then since the financial crisis in the form of quantitative easing as well so if you put all those four things together, you kind of get this you kind of get this um, Uh, almost kind of greenhouse perfect conditions for the flourishing of the of the frontier
0: let's talk about some specific examples um to to sort of unfold the argument a bit further Mm. public sector outsourcing um we've obviously seen this during the uh coronavirus crisis around the test and trace issue among other things just just talk to us about why Public sector outsourcing is a rent share problem. What's the sort of evidence for that?
4: A lot of people would would say, well, hang on a second, this isn't about rent. This is about companies doing things, providing providing services, whether it's you know street cleaning services or prison maintenance services or whatever else it is. Um, and so I can, I think you know a lot of people would think it a bit strange to think of this in terms of assets and rents. The key thing here is to remember that these services are being packaged up and bought and sold within the context of, of, of very often very, very long-term contracts. And, and it's those contracts to provide such and such a service for the next 20 years to such and such an actor that become the assets that, in a sense, generate rental income for these actors. To be sure, the income that those actors earn is, is partly based on the work that's actually performed, but it's also partly based upon the assets that they've uh, been able to, uh, to acquire in the first place. And the, the, the argument I make in the book is that, is that um, you know, to, be, to be sure you, um, you need to perform um, work uh, in order to continue to win contracts, but you certainly can't perform the work without winning contracts in the first place. And so if you look at if you if you take a close look at the you know the annual reports of these big contracting companies, the AME's and the capitas of the world, you know, the key emphasis is on is on the value of these contract assets that they have. It's all about, you know, average length of contracts, rates you know, rates of success in renewing contracts, average value per year of these contracts. And these so are contracts they, with, the, with the state, Brett, yeah? With the, sometimes with the state and sometimes with other private sector yeah. actors. Yeah. 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 But, it, but within the UK, it's for, for sure, public sector outsourcing is kind of the linchpin of this. And why is that a rentier problem then? Where things are um, tendered and conducted in this, in this manner through uh, the tendering and offering and, and winning of, of these long-term contracts... What you see is that companies become preoccupied with winning contracts, with getting the assets and with kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, showing the value of those assets to investors who are you know, owning shares in those companies and actually delivering the services associated with those contract assets time and time again is shown to be a somewhat less significant activity to those, uh, to those companies.
0: And is that because they've got such long-term contracts that you're thinking they don't need to worry too much about the quality of the service? Is that your argument?
4: That is my argument.
0: Now, look, we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, and we're going to move on to solutions. And what's the the good news is the Jeffocracy is where Jeff is the benign, if somewhat rentier-ish dictator. I'm not sure what his assets are. No, I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) uh, Um um What you 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 talk in the book in the um chapter called the C- coda, I think, the last the last chapter about some of the solutions to this problem. Will you will you just maybe run us through some of the solutions and just sort of how you think they might work? And 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 basically, Jeff's going to make you the minister for what non rentierism? Exactly <laughs> so, that. Yeah, yeah. Not, <laughs> yeah. not anti rentierism. I mean, I don't know. Jeff. You're going to be the prefer? the rentier's nemesis. What's your sort of um, set of solutions?
4: You know, in no particular order. The first I point to is actually competition policies. You know, one example of that would be, you know, intellect would be intellectual property, where um, where the UK's antitrust authorities have have been very uh, loath in you know in recent times to. Um, to really interfere with the monopoly that intellectual property So, I
0: should interrupt, an example of that would be around the big tech companies, yes?
4: Yeah, that would be one example but also I think the pharmaceutical companies as well. You know, intellectual property is incredibly well protected um, within, within the UK, partly because of because of because of weak competition policy. I think the tax system is crucial. You know, I think it's I think it's it's impossible to even envision a, a a less rentierized economy in the UK um, without significant change to the to the tax system, you know the relationship between um, uh, income-based taxes on the one hand and wealth-based ta- or asset-based taxes on the other. Um, you know I think the, the UK is is as I said earlier is is very very benign when it comes to wealth-based taxes. So taxes on on assets. Of some kind or another, whether those are financial assets, whether it's land value taxes, whatever else it is. The third one um, that I talk about is investment, industrial policy, for example, um, the government getting involved in trying to nudge private sector investment in particular in particular non-runtier type directions. And then the last one, and, and I think you know the, the the most important one because it's kind of fundamental is about ownership transformation. You know, a rentier capitalist economy, almost by definition, is an economy in which in which private ownership has become almost the default ownership status for assets of 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 most, if not all kinds. And so I think I think you know moving away therefore also by definition, moving away from a, a rentier-based system. Is precisely about diversifying asset ownership, and that doesn't have to be. You know, you don't have to kind of fall back on a crude, you know, private sector ownership bad, public sector ownership good, dichotomy. You know, surely for sure, there are certain areas where assets should remain within private sector hands, but there are probably also areas where assets could be or should be returned to public sector ownership, either at the either at the national level or at the or at the local municipal level. But also, there are areas where assets potentially should be owned not either by private sector actors or by the state, but by communities and obviously and, and land in the form of you know com- things like community land trusts would potentially be a good example there, uh, or companies in the terms of employee ownership. So what I argue in the book is that is that you know and I and I and I and I really believe this is true is that. You know, a much healthier ownership ecology would be a mixed ownership ecology where you didn't have this kind of unquestioned dominance of private ownership of assets. But you had this kind of plural ecolo- ecology or mixed ecology that combines private ownership, the community ownership, with uh, a much greater level of public ownership municipally or nationally.
0: Does he get the job, Jeff? Absolutely. What if he took revenge on you, though? I'm 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 very happy don't consider to just, yourself a rentier. I'm I'm going to sit on my asset. I don't want to leverage it in any way. Just at the end, I want to return to something which I think you think you say in the book is pretty fundamental, which is where this analysis takes you. That that you think there's been a sort of categ- slight category error in the way that people have analysed the development of our economy, and that people have talked about financialisation. Yes, i.e., the role of finance is a dominant thing in our economy. You think that's part of it, but it's only a part of it.
4: Yeah, no, that's 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 absolutely right. I think that um, you know the way I the way I the way I put it in the book is that you know what people have referred to as financialization, that you know as you put it the growing the growing dominance of the finance sector is one component of uh, of the advance of rentier capitalism. Maybe the lead, you may know, maybe even the leading edge of that. But it is only part of it, and 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 not its totality. And therefore, to to argue that, um, you know, that to reduce the transformation of the UK economy to a process of financialisation, I think is to, is to miss a huge amount else of of what has been going on.
0: Well, look, uh, Brett Christopher's. Um, it sounds like you've got the job as the rentier czar. I don't know whether that's the right phrase. Thank you so much for joining us. Now to talk further about the specific issue that Brett raised around public sector outsourcing. I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Pascal Robinson, who is campaigns officer for We Own It, a campaign for public ownership. Pascal, thank you so much for joining us.
5: Thanks so much for having me. So
0: could you perhaps start by giving us an overview of what's happened with public sector outsourcing during the COVID crisis?
5: We can talk about the way the government has upheld private outsourced companies. Uh, For example, they've handed billions over to train companies, uh, over a billion to the bus companies. Uh, They've continued supporting those private companies to extract as much profit out of us as possible. However, of course, we've seen in our health service as well how this has been a total excuse by the government to privatise and outsource as well. We saw this uh, most keenly, of course, with Um, our test and trace system uh, where the government set up an alternative new testing network when they could have invested in our NHS and they did this also with contact tracing uh, a a skill that we have in in our local communities all across the UK and where they instead set up uh, a separate um, very inexperienced and therefore failing network
0: And let's talk specifically about the test and trace system. Who's been winning those contracts and and what does it show about the problems of outsourcing?
5: So, Serco are a company whose raison d'etre is winning government contracts. 40% of their entire global business comes from getting UK government contracts. They basically um, quickly realised that contracts were available. and, And the government offered them a contract to do contact tracing of course now this is this is part of our our everyday parlance but what what contact tracing is of course set up to do is to find your contacts and and ask them to self-isolate but this is extremely skilled work and this expertise lies in our communities all across again uh, the UK so for example local public health teams have Um, Contact tracers, um, they, for example, deal with measles outbreaks, as uh, Oldham Council did really effectively just a few years ago. But there are also sexual health officers that are experienced in this. Uh, Infectious diseases nurses also do this. And rather than doing that, the government decided to contract out Serco to set up call centres across the country to read out a script and uh, to ask people to fill in an online form. Is it completely
3: compatible? I guess it's really interesting hearing you uh, talk about Serco there, because I guess the, the reasoning w- with private contracts is the is a level of expertise and existing infrastructure that you ca- can tap into as and when needed uh, by government as an efficiency, but... Your suggestion is that the the, the expertise doesn't exist in these companies and the fact that they exist purely to win government contracts defeats that argument.
5: Exactly. Um, And you've hit the nail on the head. Um, The the argument is that they will be really efficient and that they'll bring innovation, um, that they'll bring expertise from the outside. But we, we know that this isn't true and and we've seen it isn't true so for example uh deloitte were called in to set up a separate ppe channel um when 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 it, there was not enough of it and uh, one british factory owner said uh, deloitte know nothing about supply chains um they don't seem to know where to find uh any of these things um i i i make this stuff and i can get in contact with them um Circo, as I've already outlined, don't have experience in contact tracing um, and and there are people that are really skilled in that, and we could have scaled that up. Uh, and similarly, we saw that um, private companies were were asked to expand quickly testing networks and and the lack of integration there caused huge problems. It caused delays, it caused a lack of communication with uh, NHS. Uh, and university testing labs, and and um, we saw back in September that those same networks reached out to the NHS and said, "Can we have your help?" Um, I I don't I don't think that they do bring expertise, but it just costs us more money for worse outcomes.
3: Is there a better version of outsourcing? Maybe where the the bidding process is cleared up not to favour these big companies who have become expert in winning contracts or do you think it's just incompatible with public services?
5: So there's a, a green paper out right now which is looking at procurement and um, and supposedly that will fix some of the problems and uh, Good Law Project have done some amazing work to force the government to be honest about contracts uh, the National Audit Office has highlighted that 10 billion was given out without a competitive tendering process. I think that as long as you see yourself as delivering part of the pie, it's not your job to serve the community. It's your job to deliver X out of X, Y, Z. I think there will always be this this problem where where profit is prioritised. And and that's why we advocate for democratic, participatory, uh, green and caring, publicly owned public services. And we see that that works in, in so many cases. The, the vaccine is a is a great example of the NHS being uh, given the resources and and the support to to do a much better job than outsourcing it would. And I think vaccines is a is a great parallel to draw. And it's clear as day vaccines are going quite well, hitting the targets. Um, on the whole, of course, there are things we need to improve, whereas Test and Trace was a mess and PPE was an absolute mess.
3: Pascal Robinson,
0: thank you so much.
5: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Now, we, we're we going to do something after 179 episodes, which is rather unusual, which is that you and I, we really like this subject, but we're slightly scratching our heads, aren't we?
3: Yes, yes, I, I really do. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there, but I'm, I'm struggling to wrap my head around it. I was thinking about my late uncle, Brian, who worked for Radio Rentals. I was thinking, is he part of the problem? Um, and and we, were, we were asking Joel, yeah. can you just, ex- can you just explain, explain it to us again? And actually, Joel has come up with this, such a perfect way of crystallising what we've talked about. Don't, don't increase the pressure too much. And yeah. what the solutions are. Yeah. Uh, we thought we would just yeah. bring him onto the podcast to do that job for us. Joel.
2: Okay, so the way I understand it, Um, or the the way I understand Brett's argument, is that the problem is we've got an economy which is too much based on owning things rather than doing things. Um, That's the kind of rentier dynamic that he talks about. Um, The problem then is that because a small number of people in the UK uh, own a lot of the things, then the money that flows from that goes to a small number of people, which is what causes the inequality problem. And then do you want me to go into his solutions? Definitely, yeah. And then because of that, the kinds of solutions that he's talking about are about trying to either increase the doing rather than the owning or to increase the number of people who are doing the owning. So, for example, in terms of his industrial policy, that's about growing the kind of part of the economy which is about doing rather than owning. But his kind of solutions around ownership are more about spreading the owning So that um, so so that money then goes to more people. And then on competition, he's saying that competition policy can be used to address the monopoly problem, which will reduce the amounts of money that goes to those who are doing the owning uh, and therefore, again, kind of reduce the, the inequality problem.
3: I thought that was pretty good, don't you think, Jeff? I just think we should release a two-minute episode every week, which is just Joel (laughs) giving us the the short Pass Notes version
0: of of the episode. That was so great. Normally, we do that sort of off mic and then we try and sound intelligent (laughs) basically uh and this time we did it on mic and a star is born
3: send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast For our cheerful person, we're going to talk now to Mark Steers, who is director of the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney and author of a new book. It's called Out of the Ordinary, How Everyday Life Inspired a Nation and How It Can Again. Mark, hello. Hello. And before we get into any of that, you and Ed go way back. You were a speechwriter of his for a long time. You worked very closely with him. You're good friends. Tell me about the first time ever you saw his face <laughs> Was it across a crowded room. What was that first meeting?
6: I first met Ed. I don't know if he remembers this, but I first met Ed queuing up for lunch in yes. university on the very first day. Yes. And we were in the wrong I place. We, uh, we you were.
3: Know, <laughs> trying to get in to get what our sausages and chips, you know. Uh, yep. And uh, yeah, that was it, really. Wow. And was it like an American teen movie? You wanted to sit at Ed's table because he was one of the cool kids? That's it. No, that's not. That's a long way from the truth. <laughs> one of the square kids. Was Ed as square as he paints? He, he makes out that he was incredibly square at university. Is, is, is that 100% true? No,
6: not in the slightest. Uh, you know, no, Ed was like... You know, the, the only square thing about Ed was that he wore the same a bright blue jumper every day uh, for three years, I think. So I think every photograph
0: I've got uh, of those times at college. I'm actually still wearing the bright blue jumper, I think <laughs> you've noticed. It's the same one. <laughs> he set a trend.
6: We were all doing it by the end. So
3: so how how did you end up working for him then?
6: The key thing was when the Labour government fell in 2010 and, you know, there was just a huge sense of... Uh, the party needing to, you know, rebuild, reshape. You know, I was teaching at Oxford University uh, in 2010 and all the students and the, you know, politics professors and stuff were in there, you know, watching the election on a big screen. Um, And it was a pretty hard night, um, obviously. Uh, But then when Ed appeared uh, to, you know, doing his sort of post-election interview at four o'clock in the morning or whatever, uh, 200 students or so left in the room and there's just this huge cheer uh and there was this fantastic moment of sense of like okay out, out of defeat is going to come uh, revival and renewal and uh you know this is the man who's going to do it for us
0: i don't think i've ever told you this story mark but um there's a colleague of mine and i said to him um maybe i could get mark steers to come and be my speechwriter, and he was like no chance <laughs> There's no way he's going to want to do that. He's a professor at Oxford. Forget about it. So I was so convinced he he sort of knew you and he's obviously in touch with you and he, and I said, "Oh, well, okay, maybe he's not going to do it." Um but anyway, so, so I but I then sort of, you know, thought, well, actually maybe it's worth trying. Well, it's it's interesting in,
3: in the book. I mean, it's it's um you you touch on that period of your life. Uh, it, it crops up every now and again. And I was really interested to read that as a speechwriter you would consult people from, you know, the worlds of of cinema or theatre. Tell us a bit more about that, who those people were and and what you learned from doing that from a speechwriting point of view.
6: I think the key about, uh, you know, good speech is that it's trying to do everything. You know, it's trying to outline a diagnosis of, you know, what the country's facing, to come up with some good policy proposals, uh, to excite the party members so that they'll go out and campaign so you're trying to get a, as a much advice from as many people as you possibly can. And, you know, we were really lucky um, because, you know, Ed did, you know, I'll embarrass him, but he did inspire a lot of people who just thought this was going to be a new direction for the party and then a new direction for the country. And he wanted to pitch in. And so we did, um, you know, there were movie directors and, you know,
0: theatre directors and writers. Paul Greengrass, you mentioned in the book, Josie Rourke. It's, it's interesting. I was going to mention Paul, actually, because I was, go- I was going to say that in a way the most... Uh, fertile is a slightly odd way of putting it but the but the most kind of enjoyable thing that mark and i did was writing the party conf- conference speech and paul said to me early on i think to mark that very few people get a chance to talk to the country about where it's at and where it needs to go and he you know and in a sense he was sort of i thought he you know, he was sort of encouraging us to think, well, what's the story about where the country is and what needs to change? So we would spend, Mark and I would spend a number of months. I mean, sometimes people think about these speeches as sort of, you spend a couple of weeks doing them. We'd spend a number of months thinking, you know, what is the state of the country? What kind of country do you want to build? And, And what are the sort of historical, what are the historical lessons that we can sort of draw on? And as as somebody who's done like
3: a little bit of television script writing, I, I could find it very frustrating when the words on the page were uh were, were were massacred by the person delivering them. Um but and then every now and again someone will come along who can really lift it off the page. Um how how much Sort of coaching
0: of I was would in, you the do. Ma- How- I was in, I'm the massacre. I was the massacre. <laughs>
6: well, the great thing about working with Ed, you, you, you'll know this, Jeff, it's like, you know, you do everything together. So, you know, we, we would sit up uh, in his, you know, in his room uh sort of you know sat at a computer some of my you know sort of fondest memories of that is like he would leave all these incredibly important people downstairs who were you know there to see him to talk about you know some policy or some issue or whatever uh and we'd be upstairs for hours you know sort of trying to get the jokes right at the
3: start of the speech and that was fantastic (laughs) Uh, we should talk we should talk about the the book um maybe we should start by talking about uh, what you mean when you talk about the the politics of everyday life you also say politics focuses too much on abstraction so just talk us uh, uh, about those ideas a little bit if you would wouldn't mind
6: yeah i mean i think the 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 truth is we kind of knew this coming in in 2010 already like you know i look i'm a labor person and wish the government well but there was a sense of you know having been in office for so long uh, Uh, just the sort of gulf had emerged between ordinary people living their ordinary lives and, you know, the sort of expectations and understandings of the people at the top of the party and, you know, people trying to govern. And, you know, that's not because of bad character or, you know, sort of people's bad intentions. It's just what happens when, you know, professional people get into a rut and into a groove and everything becomes about the way in which they look at the world rather than the way in which the world is experienced by the rest of us. And then, you know, we tried, I guess, when I was working with Ed to do everything we could to sort of close that gap uh, between the way that, you know, most of us experience the world and, you know, the way that people at top of political parties do. But it's really, really hard, you know, because like, you know, being a politician is a really difficult job and you're bombarded with expertise all the time and, you know, pollsters and strategists. And, and again, it you know separates you uh, every day from, you know, the people who are you know, getting on the bus or going on the train or going to work or trying to look after the kids. Um, and that's that fundamental division, I think, is to blame for a lot of all the things that we've gone through since, you know, not just in the UK, but in other countries too. This this sense that you know, far too many people have, um, that even, you know, the well-intentioned politicians don't really understand what the structures and you know, rhythms of their everyday lives are, and that's really what the book is about—is you know, pointing that out and suggesting a few ways that we might be go about changing it.
3: This definition of an everyday life—how do you go about pinning that down? Because what what my everyday life and, and what I would want it to be as a middle aged dad of a young kid—it might be very different to that of you know somebody in the early twenties. What is that sense of everyday life? In common, I think at
6: its core, there are relationships. It's a very, in a way, a very technical jargony term, but there are relationships that matter to people in their everyday lives. And if you if you do this, if you if you get groups of people, you know, young people, old people, rich people, poor people, different ethnicities, different sexualities, etc., and ask them what are the fundamental things that they value in their life, then they will talk you through their relationships. There'll be family relationships, there'll be relationships with neighbours, the people that they know at work. Some of those relationships will be good and affirming and, you know, build their confidence, make them think that life's worth living. Some of those relationships will be abusive or repressive or exploitative. But that's the way that most people think about whether their lives are going well or whether their lives are going badly. Um, and that we all have in common, you know, as sort of human beings, uh, independent of all the other various things which are different about us. And, you know, now in COVID of all times, that ought to be clear to us, I think. because that we're all, you know like, horrible cliche about being in it together and clearly we're not in it together in certain important ways. But actually, people are struggling with isolation and lockdown and separation that comes from it, you know, precisely because... It's stopping them leading the lives, you know, for good reason, but nonetheless, it's stopping them leading the lives uh, that they know that they value, like meeting their mates at the pub or, you know, going out for the evening or, you know, just bumping into people at lunch at work. And they can't do any of that stuff at the moment. So I think, you know, COVID has revealed what matters to people. Then you do this, you look back at politics and say, is that what we're hearing from our political leaders, that we're going to make those relationships stronger and easier and get rid of the repressive and the exploitative ones? I just think far too often still politics is silent on all of that. doesn't have anything to say to it. Um, And and people feel that that differential. They know that. Um, So that's basically where I would go.
0: Well, listen, it's been fantastic to have you on. The book is Out of the Ordinary. Um, Mark Steers, thank you very much. Thank you so much.
3: Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Geoff Lloyd.
0: Well, we're in the outro and we've got sort of slightly... Uh, unusual announcement, which is that next week is episode 180! Which I've been looking forward to for a long time, and I have sort of even devised a, I don't want to overdo the expectations here, but I, I sort of thought I might try, try and do a little quiz for you on to, in relation to 180, which is a dance thing. But also, next week is going to be about lace making, yes? Sort of. Well,
3: well, sort of. Because we've had so much in this week's episode, we haven't had time to go through the email, but we have had quite a lot of email in response to uh, both 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 improving Ed's running time and our idea for a cheerful fellow. And we're going to tie
0: lace making together with that next week. And we'd like some more input on this cheerful fellow idea, which for those who didn't listen last week is about a sort of basically Obama fellow, but slightly better, Uh, which is somebody who wants to do kind of spend a year enacting some kind of social change and wants the advice of our listeners and then we'd like to speak to them every so often about how it was going the listeners would give advice crowdsourced wikipedia blah
3: blah how can our community of listeners support you in enacting social change yes
0: yeah that's that's good
3: um i was going to thank you um I bugged you at some point last weekend because my son became preoccupied yes, with what colour with my pyjamas pajamas that you wear and whether they were blue or not because it's his favourite colour and he really wanted to know whether you wore blue pyjamas so you took the time not only to answer his question but you sent me a photograph of your
0: pyjamas. Exactly. Well, actually, I went out and bought a set of pyjamas that were blue and then photographed <laughs> for you. <laughs> no, that's not true. Uh, um...
3: Was he? What was the reaction to the blue pyjamas? Well, he, was, he was delighted. I, I keep telling you, you're a bit of a, an obsession of his at the moment because Aww. he thinks you're one of the people trying to help the planet. He's obsessed with the Arctic animals and the planet getting warm and because he knows that's part of your work, you're a big hero to him. Hence his
0: fascination with what colour pyjamas you wear. So he's obviously a budding environmentalist. It looks that way. My son, when he was significantly younger, my older son, did join... Greenpeace, I think it was. Uh, yes, and then at about eight o'clock at night, we got a phone call asking to speak to him, uh, and it was somebody trying to raise money for Greenpeace. And we said he was unfortunately in bed asleep. And who was it? Anyway, it was Greenpeace trying to raise money. So, um, did they ask you what colour anyway. your pajamas were? We didn't, we didn't get onto the pajamas, <laughs> fuddly enough. But we did. We, I'm definitely sure we talked about the polar bears. Um, Shall we thank our guests? Yes. I'd like to thank Brett Christophers and Pascal
3: Robinson. And thank you to Mark Stairs. who was just so interesting to talk to, so much so that, in fact, you just heard a really just a, a, a fraction of the conversation. Super-son. A soup song. Um, so we've decided that we're, we're going to give you a bonus episode later this week. You can hear that full conversation with mark steers about his book and he was uh, really interesting
0: i think we should thank joel pierce for being a guest on the podcast don't you
3: think yeah was, i think joel's voice has maybe appeared on occasion but that was the first chance i think really our listeners got to to hear joel in action and just yeah hear what he has to offer impressive give him an inch though ed
0: it, go, it goes to the head very quickly yeah exactly yeah. the joelocracy is on its way <laughs> emma
3: caution produces our podcast the aforementioned joel in it as well as his ability to summarize and crystallize uh, what we've talked about he also did all the research for the episode and found uh, the brilliant guests with support from jack jeffrey also thanks to Joe Kenyon at Goldfish and uh, thanks to our friends at Left Foot Forward. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dents. And our artwork was made by...
0: Henry Cull. He'll be wearing blue pyjamas. He'll be coming round the mountain. <laughs> and these are be... <laughs> Reasons to be cheerful. <laughs>